First on film and entertainment and four movies to discuss and hopefully a couple of musicals slash plays. So that's on the menu today, as is Peter Krause. Uh, I think it's quite delectable when it comes to cinema, at least. Uh, <laughs> your, your knowledge of sport, Peter, um, would that sort of fit onto a an old one-cent piece? Uh, I was going to say a thimble, but yes. <laughs> I think that's true. Greg, you're a little bit more attuned to the sporting world, which also crosses over as entertainment. But uh, in terms of... Uh, do you, uh, actually, do you like any sport other than football? I'm curious. Uh, that's the main one. Is there anything else that you show an interest in at all in the world of sport or not? Uh, well, no. Okay, so Olympic Games, no? Uh, no, I do tend to watch some of the Australians competing, but, um, yeah. I'm curious in terms of, you know how... I mean, um, that kind of thing, maybe. Um, so, sorry, what was that? I, I didn't hear that. Swimming, I... Yeah. Now, I think swimming's a terrific sport. I, it's one of those things, I, I'm... I'm allergic to chlorine and I find that I, I, I learned to swim, but I don't swim well. And I'm, I can't say I'm confident in the water uh, or in the water. Did you, I mean, both of you guys, similar sort of age, was swimming a big part of your bringing up or, or not? Maturation? Greg? Yeah, um, I, also, I used to go swimming all the time, um, especially in summer there. Um, and when I moved to Melbourne, you had indoor pools. I could go swimming um there as well um and so, sorry when you said move to melbourne and everything so i'm pretty pretty versed in that i don't drown put it that way well that's so when you say move to melbourne where where were you originally from um i was born out in the country country victoria yeah oh okay and peter what about you uh swimming big part of your bring, upbringing or not really not really i just had to do it when i was in primary school to get my certificate to That's prove right. that, I, that i couldn't drown <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's fair and reasonable i i look i suppose the, the easiest thing to do is walking greg which is what you do correct uh yeah. and and you, you can do that anywhere in the world at any time well not at any time i remember when i uh, my wife is south african and we visited south africa for the first time since she left the country and it was my first experience there as well. And we were warned that you don't want to go out after dark, which was quite sobering, to be quite honest. And when we landed Johannesburg, there's a barbed wire everywhere, which was quite confronting, I've got to say. And, you know, obviously she came to Australia with a family to escape apartheid. And it was, yeah, it was interesting how the, the whole country has changed and changed since, of course, uh, as well. But I suppose the difficulty is, I mean, I remember even walking. Do you remember the first match, even if you don't follow cricket, Greg, there was a, a big, big to do because Dave Warner, David Warner, who's our opening batsman, was playing, I think it was either a, a T20 or a 50 over game. And I walked back next to the shrine and this was around about 10 o'clock at night. Now, if if you you know that part of the world, both of you. Yeah. And and I yeah. was confronted by two or three people, one of whom had a knife. Uh, so that was kind of a bad experience, which was not far from the CBD. And the CBD itself can be a bit seedy, Greg, which is where you live, can't it? It can be. I, but I, living here, having lived here long enough, I know where to avoid and what times to avoid and, you know, pretty safe where I go. I, yeah, I, I just wonder, I mean, Peter, you've got a friend of yours as well who often comes to cinema and 
she sort of wanders home at night and I, I sort of uh, I'm not trying to be sexist here but I mean obviously uh, a person on their own walking home late at night it, you know my wife and I were rather concerned shall we say I don't know whether that's something that crosses your mind it does but she seems very comfortable she knows uh, yeah, the, she does, she does. Uh, yeah how to navigate by the way you mentioned South Africa did yeah. you know the South African Film Festival is on right now at the Classic Cinema no, I didn't. And the, the interesting thing is, why were they not give? Um, why did we not hear more about it? The promotion of it hasn't been strong. That's a good point. It's all done uh, internally by by the classic and by the people who run it. So they always contact me, and I went to the opening night on Thursday, um, oh. which was a, a documentary on Lady Smith Mombaza, I think it's called. Right. Uh, 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 anyway, so there's about twenty films. Um, both uh, in cinema and online. Uh, many over fresh, the, many fresh ones, Peter. I mean, many thing, many things that are uh, sort of narrative-based, not not documentaries, and that are sort of original works. There are there are a number of uh, recent films, uh, documentaries, of course, but also some feature films, including one I've seen, The Fragile King, uh, about a grandfather-son um, uh, grandson relationship in South Africa. Very good film. Anyway, so that's no, 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 that's, that's good. I, I, while we're on film festivals, we may as well start with this because the German film festival started on Thursday night, and I, we. Well, I think uh, at least you and I, I'm not sure whether Greg saw this one, but we saw the media preview was Sissy and I, S-I-S-I and I, and it concerned, it was a rather interesting film, actually. I mean, I, I didn't know the story, but I was kind of thinking about this story as, uh, you, you know, how much interest there was in Princess Diana and unfortunately her untimely passing, etc. But back sort of more than 100 years earlier, there was interest in Duchess Elizabeth in Bavaria, which is what Sissy and I sort of concentrates on. And the Duchess lived between 1837 and 1898. And her nickname was Sissy, hence the title of the movie. And she was Empress of Austria. She was also Queen of Hungary as a result of her marriage to Emperor Franz Joseph I. She was married, Peter, at 16 uh, yeah, ra rather tender age. She was married in 1854. Now, she she's known or was known as one of the most beautiful and famous women of 19th century Europe. And she's played here by Suzanne Wolfe. Quite a demanding beauty routine that uh, the Duchess had, including daily care of her long and abundant hair. I was thinking of Rapunzel when I was sort of... Um, <laughs> looking at that. Uh, anyway, she, she maintained a really rigorous and disciplined exercise regime or regimen, and um, I suppose I admire that. But anyway, it was she, she was involved in sports like gymnastics, and she, she was a rider as well, horse rider, uh, and that sort of helped her keep a, a slim figure. She also became emotionally distant from her husband as she got older, and, and she basically escaped him, fleed from him, and also escaped duties of life at court. So she avoided those duties as much as she possibly could, and she also travelled quite extensively. So this is a Sissy and I is a wild reinterpretation of her story, told from the perspective of her lady in waiting, who is known as Countess Irma von Satteray, played by Sandra Hulia. And she was brought up, this is the sort of Irma von Satteray, brought up by her strict and overbearing mother Maria. 
and she's at the age of 42, Countess Irma was chosen to join the Empress, to join Sissy, who is by then living in an aristocratic women-only commune at her summer residence in Greece, in Corfu. So it's fair to say that at first Irma has no idea what, what, what's just hit her. And the Empress really is nothing if not quite eccentric and extravagant. She's got this sort of my way or the highway approach, dismissive, I would say, of subordinates and, and very dismissive on a whim, right? If, if the um, if the breeze walks one way or moves one way, she might have one approach and then the next moment she's got another one. And this is, as I say, Sissy's approach to everybody. She can be playful, she can be exuberant, but just as easily quite melancholy and standoffish and at times really downright cruel. Nevertheless, Irma grew to love the Empress and, and become highly protective of her. And at one point, she's clearly jealous of the Empress's affections for another person. The director, Froke Fistenwalder, has based this film, Sissy and I, which he wrote along with Christian Kracht, on Irma's historical writings. Quite a fascinating portrait, actually, of a woman prone to extremes, to excess, to indulgence. And the relationship between the Empress and her lady-in-waiting, I thought was very well formed and quite quite well developed. I did appreciate the dynamic between them and how Irma came to read read the room, how to, how to sort of read the mood of the Empress, or otherwise known as Sissy, uh, quite, quite um, adeptly. But my read on, on the Empress is that she's rega she regarded the people in her service as playthings to be pushed and prodded in any way she saw fit. So that, that's my quick interpretation. What about yours, Peter? Sissy and I. Yeah, I think that's that's quite a reasonable interpretation. It, the, the mythology surrounding the Austrian uh, Empress, um, uh, Sissy, um, is, is quite incredible. There were three films made in the 1950s, um, uh, starring Romy Schneider as uh, Empress mm -hmm. Elizabeth. And, and this whole notion of this potentially uh, early feminist um, sort of uh, empress and her wanting to be independent and so on was starting to emerge in the third film uh, in the 50s, but also in the film that we saw recently, Corsage, uh, that uh, starred Vicky Creeps who also played uh, uh, Empress Sissy much more as an independent uh, woman uh, wanting to be free of the shackles of, uh, of marriage and of, uh, of her uh, husband. It's, uh, I found this version seen through the eyes of uh, Sandra Hüller, who plays uh, Irma, uh, a, a very interesting take on this whole mythology because there have been a number of interpretations of uh, the Empress and, and this is another version of that as seen through uh, another eye, if you like. Well, I, I, like I, I liked it. It's interesting yeah. because there's the, the sort of a dignity and on occasions a desperation about the way that Irma conducts herself. And I, I kind of like that juxtaposition. I, I like the way the characters were presented in the film. And, and I thought that Suzanne Wolfe brought this strength and determination, as well as vulnerability to her role as the Empress. And Sandra Huller, well, really runs the gamut of emotions as the dutiful lady-in-waiting. Hmm. 
Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and Sandra Hula is such a terrific actress. She was, of course, in Tony Erdman and uh, so many other films. So, yes, that dynamic is so well developed in the film. And uh, uh, it, it's interesting the the way the film concludes, which, of course, we won't spoil. But no. uh, uh, quite a contrast to Corsage and quite a contrast to the original Sissy films from the 50s. So but certainly a highlight of this year's German Film Festival. I also quite like George Frederick. He makes an immediate and really favourable impression as the colourful friend of the Emperor, shall we say, who comes to visit her in Corfu. He may not have a big role, but it's a role that really stands out or stood out to me. Yes, yes, exactly. The the uh, and it's also nice to see Angela Winkler, the veteran German actress, uh, playing a, a small but key role later in the film. It's a it's a really well cast and well acted film. It's it's fascinating because the, what you've got is a situation where everybody's constantly on edge trying to meet the Empress's demands. They're they're running and scurrying is probably the word scurrying this way and that. You know the, these demands and expectations are quite seem to be quite outrageous at times I, i've got to say i thought it was a bit indulgent peter two hours 12 minutes really i mean uh, it's it sort of i look it opens the door on a cultured but clearly troubled woman who back in the day appeared as intriguing as i said as uh, lady diana was but did it really need to be two hours 12 minutes I didn't worry about the length at all. I think it needed to be developed very carefully in terms of her character and the relationship between her and Irma. So I had no problem with that. Uh, Greg, you haven't seen this one, but you've seen... A, no, I've, I've, seen, I've seen this one. I've oh, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't ignoring you, but I, did, I wasn't sure. So, so what I wasn't sure either when you were ignoring me. I'm just <laughs> being ignored. But, so what did look, you think of Sissy and I? Look, I, I, I saw Cossage recently as well, and this film shares a few similarities with it but i thought this film paled in comparison it lacked the bolder vision and style of marie Krupsa there um this one i thought was a bit episodic in nature as well over the two uh, two and a bit of hours there um but it's got that modern sensibility here which peter alluded to as well um elizabeth is shown as a radical woman with a modern sensibility but she's also shown as a flawed person vain and capricious but i thought um Sandra Huller did a good job of conveying the, this complex character there. Um, it's beautifully shot. It's got great um, costumes and production design there and some evocative image from the cinematographer there. But I thought it lacked any real depth or insight into the characters. As I said, a little bit episodic in nature. And I found over two hours, it was a little bit uneven and dragged at times there. Mm. Two strong central performances there. Um, obviously, um, Wolf had a lot of fun playing her. Um, oh yes, oh I mean, yeah. You could tell you. Uh, and, and that's to her credit. That's to her credit. The way that she, yeah. she there, there, there was a sort of almost lilt in her step at times, and I, I thought that worked very well. Yeah. But, yeah. So, um, no, so what, what would you give it out of ten, Greg? Probably five. Really? A bare pass. Okay, Sissy and I. I think Peter, you and I are going to do better than that. What, what, what have you given it? I, I should mention, Corsage was set during her fortieth birthday and that time period, whereas uh, Sissy and I is much more uh, developed over a longer period. But anyway, I really liked it. I think the uh, the characters were well developed and well acted. Eight out of ten from me. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm giving it a seven. So, you know, I, I thought it was a worthy film. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but it, it's uh, – and, and the German Film Festival has got some uh, – Greg, you, you've seen others, and Peter, have you seen others already within the festival? Not yet. I wasn't invited to opening night. I've seen oh, okay. a thousand, I saw the opening night film, A Thousand Lies. 
And now, don't tell us. I, I want to see that. So uh, we will perhaps discuss it uh, later. Is it a worthwhile film is what I'll ask you about it. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting idea. Tapping into all that stuff about ethics and journalism and everything. And it like reminded me, remind me a little bit of that 2003 drama, Shattered Glass, that starred Hayden Christensen ah, yes. as a journalist who fabricated his stories. Um, so, yeah, interesting um, story. Doesn't quite hang together completely, but, yeah, it's an interesting story and sort of very timely and relevant. What, what, just give us a score out of 10. What would you have given it? I'd probably give it six and a half to seven. Okay. All right. So it's a decent sort of film. You are on Jair, 88 FM. And one thing I should mention that, folks, it'd be really nice because we're a community radio station and you can become a member. It's 54 bucks a year. That's it. $54. And that supports the radio station, keeps us on air. And we are, you know, a proud station, but we do need public support. That's the way that every community radio station works. So if you don't mind, if you can sort of find uh you know a bit of spare change shall we say i know times are tough but uh 54 bucks all you need to do is you get onto j-air.com.au j-air.com.au you follow the links and bob's your uncle or what's the equivalent uh, female expression uh, we, we need to be gender neutral when we're talking these days so yeah but why not support us if you can if you feel like uh, we're worthy of your support, then go for it. Now, Instead of Bob's your uncle, how about Roberta's your aunt? Doesn't kind of, yeah, maybe. Maybe we need a new expression for, for this politically correct society in which we work. Talking about politically correct, I suppose that's a, that's a prompt for me to talk about polite society. Uh, I hardly think we live in polite society, but there we go. And and this film isn't totally polite, but there, the name of it, that's it. M-rated, 104 minutes. It's a what I'd call a disruptive cultural comedy, Greg. Is that fair enough? Uh, yeah, it crosses um, Bollywood with um, a Girol English comedy, yeah, and action yeah. movie and coming of age story and rom com. And yeah, it's got a lot thrown into the mix. It, it's a sort of, it, it's basically, I, I reckon it's kind of a sought after genre because you, you go back to My Big Fat Greek Wedding and, and movies like that that have done particularly well. I reckon this is going to go well at the cinemas and it deserves to it, it's a it's a worthy entrant into that sort of sub-genre but the, the writer and director by the way has a television background her name is Nida Manzoor and I reckon she's crafted a, a kick-butt actioner with attitude in, in what is her feature film debut so I'll be watching her career with a great deal of interest it's set in London around the Pakistani community and you've got a character called Ria played by Priya Kansara, senior high school student, obsessed with martial arts. There you go, Greg. There's another sport you could get involved with. And she she dreams of becoming a stunt woman, Rhea. At every opportunity, she prevails upon her older sister, Lena, played by Ritu Aria, to help facilitate her training, her martial arts training. And she live streams her moves to social media. Now, there is one particular move that she cannot get right. Try as she does time and time again. And this is a, a signature move of her stunt hero, a woman called Eunice. This move that she simply can't get right. At school, Rhea is, well, she's in pretty tight with a couple of best friends. Clara, played by Safina Bay, and Alba, Ella Brucaleri. So they're the two best mates. And she's also regularly targeted for bullying by Kovach, played by Shona Babayemi. Meanwhile, 
the sister, Lena, the older sister, is going through a bit of a rough patch, a lot of a rough patch, quite frankly. She's dropped out of art school and is, well, she's doing nothing. All ambition appears to have deserted her. The, the family's from working class stock. Unexpectedly, then, the girls and their parents, Fatima, played by Shobu Kapoor, and Raf, Jeff Mirza, are invited to a high society event. This happens because basically that the mother is in a bit of a, a women's group, shall we say, and they go out for sort of lunches and, yeah, the invite comes along. And the overtures come from Fatima's swami, smami, I should say, affluent friend called Rahila, played by Nimra Buka. Rahila has a handsome and talented son called Salim, played by Akshay Khanna. He's a doctor who really can seemingly have any, any woman he wants. But he targets Lena, quickly turns her head. Problem is that the younger sister, Rhea, doesn't buy it, especially not when it results in preparations for what becomes an arranged marriage. And in Lena's best interest, in the interests of her older sister, even though she encounters fierce opposition, Rhea will do anything and everything to sabotage the union. That's what it's all about. I found it heaps of fun. We, You and I, Peter, saw it at the opening of the what film festival? Fantastic Film Festival. Exactly. Good name for a film festival. The alliteration works too. And uh, mind you, we did see a short called Gnomes, which I can never get out of my head. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to see, you are never going to see Gnomes in the same light if you ever get to see the short. Is that correct, Peter? It is a wonderful film. Oh, my God. Nothing, nothing like ingesting some gnomes. <laughs> I, I think you've got to take a Bex and a lie down if you see gnomes. Uh, and when you say it's a wonderful film, um, my wife was ready to run kicking and screaming from the cinema. But there we go. Uh, it is quite something. Anyway, we're not, a, we're not on about gnomes. We're on about polite society. Heaps of fun. And as I said, no doubt it's going to resonate with an appreciative audience. And i got to say, Greg, Priya Kansara, what a find in the lead role. Fierce and funny. And and those expressions of hers, those big round eyes, I, I give her extra gravitas. Did you like her? Yeah, and she, I thought she acquitted herself well in a very physical role as well. Um, very good, um, well, in the role there. But this is a sort of unique film, you know. It stands out when you've got lots of remakes, reboots, mm -hmm. sequels and superhero movies in the cinema. So it's nice to come across something that's at least a little bit different and original there. But it's a lot of fun, as you said, Alex. I liked um, Rhea's two sidekicks at school. I thought they were a bit yeah. funny, especially in the element, um, those scenes where they're trying to find the dirt on Salim there. And I liked the mother, um, the manipulative mother oh, there. Right. Um, Nimra Busha, I thought she was really good there. And she relishes the role and she chooses the scenery at every opportunity as the malevolent matriarch there. Um, really well done. I thought there was some great fight choreography here as well. Spectacular costumes. The music was good. Um, yeah, it looked really good. And it carries a strong feminist message as well, dealing with themes of family, sisterhood, culture, tradition. Um, yeah, I, I like this a lot. Yeah, I also like Rita Aria. She has a moment as this older sister. She goes from deadbeat to deluded, doesn't she, really? She does, yeah. Um, but, yeah, as Priyan is um, the centre of the film, though. I thought, oh, you know, yeah. I, mean, look, I, I, I really also liked um, the, the sort of uh, the, the characterisation, not only of the 
you've got you've got a lot of really strong characters. Uh, you've already mentioned Nimra uh, Buka, but I also like Shobu Kapoor as the, the the mother of the the two girls. I thought she she just sort of, she, she has something about her characterization. She she plays it straight but comedically, and it works. It really works very very well, doesn't it? Yeah, and I like Jeff Merza as the father too. It's a familiar role to him because he played the father in Blinded by the Light as well. So it's a familiar role for him, but I thought he brought a lot to lot to role as well. Yeah, that that was great. And look, the I mean, the many standout features in this. As far as I'm concerned, you've already mentioned the sort of villainous cartoon-like persona of Nimra Buka. Uh, I I thought the the production design, Simon Walker's production design was very strong, and Ashley Connor's cinematography was worth a mention. Really, quite a lot of wonderful, colourful scenes shot around the imminent wedding that takes place, and that's where the the best of Bollywood sort of comes to mind. And I just thought the the costume design by PC Williams and the music from Tom Howe and, and Shez Manzor, they also hit the mark. What did you think of it, Peter? I really enjoyed it. As a cultural satire, uh, especially uh, revealing a lot about Pakistani culture and also uh, as a very strong feminist-oriented film, including from the director and writer and uh, lead actors and so on, I think it, it worked extremely well. I, I loved the idea that uh, the uh, the younger woman wanted to be a stunt woman and mm -hmm. was rehearsing and trying to be that um, and uh, noticing that uh, there were some occasions when there was a crouching tiger like a hidden dragon uh, situation <laughs> where they were flying through the air with the uh, the martial arts kicks and all that sort of thing. Uh, look, this is a, a very clever uh, and amusing uh, portrait of uh, of how cultures can work together very well in uh, in British society, uh, and it it's it really is uh, very funny in many respects. The uh, the cartoonish villain. Uh, as the the mother, I thought was actually very well presented, and and uh, yes, I I didn't find it so much a Bollywood uh, type film, but more of that cultural satire and of uh, uh, looking at more of those. But martial the, wedding, the wedding scene was certainly a, a Bollywood type. Situation. A little bit, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the martial martial arts perspective and the idea of women being powerful and uh, seeking revenge when they are treated badly, I think was very well developed indeed. I agree, I agree. I mean, look, there's an inherent silliness about it, but there's also joy in the scheming that, that forms a large part of the plot and no getting away from the fact that this is a film that's got sass and bite and you just it, it's joyful in that regard. And it's I reckon it's... I suppose I'd call it a lose-yourself-in-the-moment crowd-pleaser. It, it, there's going to be a lot of people who enjoy this, so I hope it does well. It is called Polite Society. It's 104 minutes. It's rated M. Your score out of 10, Peter. Loved it. Uh, uh, even the ironic title is uh, is amusing. Mm. Uh, uh, I also gave this one 8 out of 10. Good on you. What about you, Greg? Yeah, it's quite silly at times, but it's a real crowd-pleaser. I gave it 7 out of 10. And I gave it seven and a half, so we've spanned we've spanned seven away. So the average is seven and a half. Go along and see it, folks. It's going to do very, very nicely. Uh, quite a contrast. And by the way, you are on J Air eighty eight FM. Listen twenty four seven if you want. I mean, you should get a little bit of shadow every now and again. But there's programming to stimulate you. The inspection. It's MA rated. It's ninety five minutes. Inspired by the writer and director, a person called Elegance Bratton his own story of overcoming fierce odds to become a U.S. Marine. Now, Greg, have you ever 
wanted to become a member of the armed forces? No. <laughs> okay. Peter? Definitely not. I have to say that um, very proud of my son-in-law. He actually fought for Australia in Afghanistan. And he's now a, a policeman. So, you know, he's been serving this country from the age of 18. So, you know, some people are destined to do that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, I get, we get off the, um, the path of the inspection. But we're talking about uh, New Jersey. I, I think it's 2005, isn't it? That, that, yeah, uh, yes. 2005. And uh, you've got 25-year-old Ellis French, played by Jeremy Pope, leading a, well, a threadbare existence. And he's estranged from his mum, Inez, played by Gabrielle Union. He's been on his own since the age of 16. Uh, the one thing he actually wants to do is to make her proud. He's down and out, though. Things have really haven't gone well, and he determines that he's going to sign on to become a Marine. Problem is that boot camp is hardly what he counted on. Of course, it's tough on all new recruits who have to meet harsh requirements, in this case of a very rough taskmaster, a Desert Storm veteran called Laws, played by Bokim Woodbine. But this man, Ellis French, is especially singled out. And I should say at this point, openly gay men are not allowed in the armed services. So they keep quiet about their sexuality when they enlist. Now, that's, of course, not to say that there aren't gay men and women in the military. Of course there are. But uh, what's that expression? If you don't if you don't say anything. Don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't tell. Thank you, Greg. Yeah. So but after Laws and the squadron leader Harvey, played by McCall Lombardi, discover that French is, in fact, gay, they give him hell. They constantly step over the line. They, they want to break him. It's as simple as that. But despite the challenges, several of which are illegal, he keeps coming back for more. Now, as for the mother, the confrontation between mother and son happens late in the movie, late in the inspection, and it lays out just why the two fell out in the first place. The picture really is, is a hard, hardly a pretty one, is it? It's uh, it's one of those things that's hard to watch at times. And Bratton, as the writer and director, I've got to say, I thought he took a sledgehammer approach to the material, painted a really ugly portrait as, as the men are exposed to this heady, testosterone-filled environment. And you've got pride in service on the one hand, but it's counterpointed with the dirty tactics used to undermine the recruits. So, look... Although it is an important story to be told, and I, I emphasise that, I felt the all-or-nothing approach was too heavy-handed when a bit of nuance was warranted or a lot of nuance was warranted. Uh, still, uh, Jerry, Jeremy Pope, Pope makes quite an impressive feature film debut as a man on edge throughout, who's really the easiest option would be to bail. And the other one, of course, that stands out is Bakim Woodbine, plays up that tough, unrelenting demeanour of a man used to getting his own way. There's also a bit of a thuggishness, a lot of thuggishness about McCall Lombardi's portrayal, looking to see French broken. I also quite like the, when we talk nuance, there is a bit of nuance about the squadron leader's deputy, whose name is Rosales, played by Raul Castillo. He recognises he's got a job to do in terms of training the recruits, but he can still empathise with the situation in which Ellis French finds himself. And, and I should also mention that, that as a device, the fact that we don't know exactly what went down between mother and son until near the end of the picture, I thought that worked very, very well. So that was my my take on it. 
Peter, what about yours? I, I found this quite an impressive film because Did it's you? clear. Really? It's because it's clearly autobiographical, and this yeah. is a, and of course a first-time filmmaker as well, and he's telling the story of being gay in the Marines uh, and having a, a disaffected mother at the same time. Uh, I, I think the uh, the scenes are very realistic and understandable, rather than over the top, especially when you consider. Really? Do you not yes. think it was over the top? I, I, I no. Really, well, well, it really stood out yeah. to me, Greg, uh, uh, Peter, for that very reason, for the wrong reason, to be honest. Look, oh. if, if you've seen films like Full Metal Jacket, and and Beau Travail, Claire Denis' film about the Foreign Legion and the tough uh, male rivalry and, as you say, testosterone-filled um, situation that these men find themselves in and have to overcome uh, to try and move forward and achieve something. Mm. I think it, it is presented quite realistically. The, the Marines would not be backward in coming forward in, in training their men, although we don't see any women, unfortunately, but training their men um, mm. to be as tough and, uh, and as possible to be able to resist the enemy. So I think that sort of personal reflection uh, by the filmmaker works very well for me. And with the final scene where the, the lead character, the lead actor, Jeremy Pope, looks in the mirror, mm. the whole idea of, uh, I think, the idea is that we, the audience, look at the whole training method, look at the way men deal with one another, and look at the way gays, in particular, gay people, mm. uh, are treated in the military. I, I think there are a number of aspects to this film that really worked for me. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, Leah, I mean, I, I really would have liked more subtlety in the storytelling. I, I think that would have added belief for me. And I'm not doubting that there was the you know, barking instructions from the moment that you get off the bus. I don't doubt any of that. I, I just, it, it was, most of the characters were single dimensional and that troubled me, Peter. That didn't trouble you. I didn't find so much that single dimensional. I think I think they were on the surface and uh, early on they seemed to be like that, but there were some characters that developed and changed over that uh, time period. So, no, I, it didn't bother me at all. Mm, okay, Greg, you're yet to see this one, are you not? I'm yet to see this one, yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. So that no, that's well, it's it's going to be an interesting one for you, given that Peter and I have got you know vastly different views. So, okay, it's MA rated. It's called the Inspection. Runs for 95 minutes. Score from from you, Peter. I really liked it. Seven out of ten for me. Oh well, that's interesting. I, I'm not giving it a bad mark. I'm giving it a six and a half because I still think it had an important message. So we're not far apart, but I suppose our narrative on it is somewhat different. So, yeah, well, Greg, maybe um, next week, if you get the chance to see it, uh, you can add your, your two penneth worth, so to speak, and, and give us your opinion as to which way, which way you go on it. I, I mean, I, I think the biggest problem that I have with movies is some, I suppose, is the script when, when they don't work for, for me. The, the other thing is you want to believe. You actually want to lose yourself in the characters. And uh, I... I always felt that they were acting. That, that's that's my sort of problem with it. Anyway, let's let's turn to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Now, okay, Greg, you're quite vocal in saying superhero movies are over them, right? You've been saying that for a long time on this program. I just get bored with them. They're the same old, same old. Great special effects, but um, yeah, no, I'm over them. 
Yeah, now you haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy volume. No, I haven't. Three. I had a preview at three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, which I can get to. No, because you're, of course, teaching. So, yeah, which is uh, highly meritorious in and of itself. So, uh, once again, I'll be curious as to whether you think this sort of breaks the mould or maintains it. Uh, look, it's it's full of action. It's got the humour that we're used to with the Guardians of the Galaxy. It's got a ripping soundtrack, and that's one of the things that really stands out about the franchise. And it, it's really what I liked about this. It's got a, a great heartfelt backstory. So it's quite an appealing package. It's the third film in the trilogy. The only problem, Peter, each one's 15 minutes longer than the one before. I mean, <laughs> seriously, I, I looked at it, I think two, hour, two hours one, two hours 15 and two hours 30. I mean, really? Um, now, the fan favourites return. They're pitted against a megalomaniacal arch villain who's searching for perfection at any cost. Uh, th there's nothing terribly original about that, though. But there we go. That's what the, the plot line is. And at the start of the movie, the Guardians of the Galaxy are adjusting to life on nowhere. And Peter Quill, Chris Pratt, he's struggling to deal with the loss of his beloved Gamora, Zoe Saldana's character, and he's constantly drunk. Um, does that ring a bell uh, for you, Gregory? No, I'm not warning anybody on a distant planet, and I'm not constantly drunk, despite what you might think in your no, no, no. Slide, you know slide, that I'm just having comments, Alex. You, yes, you know that they are purely meant as a as a gentle dig, nothing further. So I hope you take them in the right vein. Um, nothing, nothing further, your worship. Um, and and I've got you on health kicks in the past, so there we go. Um, I'm not sure that was me or whether that was you, but uh, no, it's me, being me. I I be, I was jogging long before I met you, Alex, and that. That's it. Sorry, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to push uh, too hard on this, Greg. So I, I apologise on air if I if it sounded like it. Um, then out of the blue, this colony is attacked by Adam Warlock, played by Will Poulter, who's this powerful artificial being. Create this is sort of AI related again. I've got to say to you, and AI is scary, is it not, Peter? I mean, it, you know, the the prospect for AI, if it's used for good, I think it's going to be brilliant. But the counter is 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 rather scary. Do you do you agree? Look, I agree. It's when it becomes humanistic, uh, like it it does in Ex Machina and uh, other films, that's when it becomes scary. Well, also, uh, it's, Greg, always it's always been scary in movies, even as far back as 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yes. With Hal, so, yeah. um, Demon Seed and Skynet and the Terminator movies. It's all. Well, the Terminator movies are what scary. Terminator Two was. What a brilliant film. I I, I just, I never, t most people who've seen Terminator 2 are blown away by it. And all these years later, I think, uh, yeah, anyway, that, that it's, it's one of those films. Uh, the, having said that, let's get back to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So you've got the colony being attacked by Adam Warlock. And the, the whole idea is that they're out to destroy the Guardians. And this guy wreaks havoc, almost claims the life of Rocket, because this, this film is all about Rocket, voiced by Brad Cooper. His only hope for survival rests on the Guardians infiltrating the lair of a character known as the High Evolutionary. And I'm, I'm going to mispronounce his name, so I apologise. Chuk Woody Iwuji. That's the best I can do. Chuk Woody Iwuji plays the High Evolutionary. He's a sociopath, Peter, isn't he? Looking to create... Yep a perfect race of highly evolved and intelligent beings in, in, in a nutshell. And his grotesque experiments, because he experiments very, very liberally, expose Rocket's 
heart-wrenching backstory. So at the same time, an old flame steps back into Quill's life, but she no longer recognises him. She seems quite cold and distant, quite calculating as well. Internally, because you've got the future of the galaxy at stake, the, the Guardians continue to snipe amongst themselves. I mean, that's been a constant through the three chapters, shall we say. Nebula, played by Karen Gillan, Gamora's adoptive sister, is hard-nosed and anything but sentimental. Mantis, Pom Clementiev, who's Quill's half-sister, is adept at using her empathetic powers to try to strike an accord. And you've got to say a high-intelligent quotient isn't high on Drax the Destroyer, Dave Batista's agenda. He just wants to use his muscle, but he's always fiercely loyal to Peter Quill. Then you've got Groot, the Vin Diesel uh, persona, who is always ready to, shall we say, branch out? Greg, can I use a dad joke? Uh, uh, when trouble looms. So you can use it. I'm not, I haven't got a copyright on it. Uh, James Gunn, well, he, he's at the head of the franchise. He's been doing it. He's been doing it. When, when did it start? Uh, quite more than you know, more than a decade ago, and and again proves uh, that you know he's 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 good at he's good at doing this sort of stuff. Several compelling features, and at the core of the story, of course, is a dysfunctional but loving family, uh, the Guardians themselves. So, Peter, did you did it rock your socks or not? Guardians of the Galaxy <laughs> Volume Three. Uh, no, I kept my socks on, but uh, oh, okay. I, I, I didn't mind it. I, I thought it was a, a nice way to conclude, with a question mark next to it, the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. I liked the first one, which had that sort of tongue-in-cheek quality to it, and uh, I am Groot uh, almost every 10 minutes, and, and we get that in this uh, yes, third version as well. Groot, Groot speaks a lot, doesn't he? He, he does. His vocabulary <laughs> needs to be expanded a little bit. Perhaps he needs to branch out a bit. But anyway, uh, it look, I quite liked it because it had that nice uh, melancholy backstory for mm. uh, for Rocket. And I liked the, the way the characters interacted, uh, occasionally with some amusing lines here and there. And it was amusing also to see Sylvester Stallone uh, in the film. I thought, wow, what's he doing in there? Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. a lot, but he was there. Uh, but, yes, um, that's true. And and I uh, even though I'm not a, a huge fan of these um, uh, these uh, superhero type films, I thought the Ga Guardians of the Galaxy franchise does work reasonably well. I should also point out uh, at the session I went to see a few days ago, um, there's a mid credit uh, end credit sequence which a lot of people had already walked out of. But, yes. Uh, and they I would noticed that. that. I mean, there were very few people left in the cinema. In fact, we've got to say, Peter, that there's two elements here. You, you there's while the credits are rolling and then after the credits. So exactly, yes. Yeah. Mm. But yes. people who see these films should know that by now. It's sort of um. You think so? Yeah. yeah. I, I I would have thought so too, Greg. I, I it's um I, I'm I, I reckon well how many people would have been left in the cinema? Maybe twenty. Yeah. yeah, about that, about that. Certainly by the time the uh, end credits concluded and that final scene came up, which is uh, amusing in itself. Uh, look, uh, overall, I, I quite like the film. I like the Rocket character, I think, was so beautifully developed. I think that was a highlight of the film. Mm, yeah, I agree. I thought, I mean, there, there, it was quite emotional, which is great. I mean, that's what you really want. The vulnerabilities of many of the key characters are also exposed, aren't they, Peter? Like, uh, And that works well. I thought the key players are strong. Each instalment, as I mentioned, did not need to be longer than the one before it. 
And and I've got to say, at two and a half hours, it did feel a bit strung out. The music choices, though, aren't mm. they masterful? They do that so darn well, Pete, don't they? Absolutely. The music is, is terrific. And the way they feed off the scenes that uh, they are based on, uh, it works extremely well. And I also, I must admit, the CGI was absolutely incredible, yes. especially the multitude of animals and other characters that were emerging in the film. Yeah, look, the numbers had me up and about and, and the humour, well, for the most part, it's quite corny, let's be honest, but very much in keeping with what we've come to expect from The Guardian. So it's a pair of safe hands. That's how I describe it. Uh, and and it, look, uh, th this is there's another element here, which I think is interesting. If you haven't seen the other two, the question is, can you go along and see this and enjoy it? Absolutely. You, you can pick up the threads. Of course, it would help if you know the characters, but I reckon you could. What do you think, Peter? I agree. You can easily pick up the story without having uh, seen the other two episodes. Yeah. So, I mean, look, uh, the a few reservations, but generally speaking, by and large, I reckon it hits the mark and it's a film worth seeing uh, and, and just be prepared to give up two and a half hours of your life. It's rated <laughs> M. It's called Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And even though this trilogy has ended, uh, there's reference to what happens next. Correct? At the end of the film. So exactly. That's, that's why I said question mark about the ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good, yes. Well, you know, if it's a money-making machine, uh, Hollywood is not known to suddenly drop the bundle. So um, no pun intended. Score out of 10, Peter. I, I, I gave it a solid 6 out of 10. Solid 6, okay. Well, I'm not sure that there is such, such a thing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a rather disappointing score for a film that you quite enjoyed. Yes, but considering that I give many of the superhero films less than five, oh, uh, I think this see. was, okay. so this was great. Comparison. Fair enough, fair and reasonable. <laughs> I'm giving it a seven out of ten, so uh, there we go. Folks, you are on Jair, and I, I referenced earlier today that uh, you know, we love your money. No, it's not like that. We actually want, um, we'd, we'd love you to support us because uh, we are a community station and 54 bucks gets you a year's subscription to the station and uh, hopefully you and others will be encouraged to do that. So just go to j-air.com.au and listen to programming 24-7 if you want to. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, a couple of plays slash musicals. One of them is actually it's going from Melbourne to Sydney and then they're doing a reading in New York. So it's nice to have a an Australian production where you know, it's going to go beyond our shores. It's called Driftwood the Musical. It's on at Chapel Off Chapel, which is, well, a really favourite venue of mine, as you know, Greg, at um, in Paran there. You've gone a few times, haven't you, to, to I Chapel? I have been a few times, yes. Yeah, I, I really, there's something nice about a, a beautiful church that's been turned into a venue for the people. I mean, there's something fitting about that, isn't there? Oh, so. For you, theatre is a religious experience anyway, Alex. Quite right. It's interesting, Greg, because I suppose the hard part is there's not enough hours in the day. I think all of us find that because, Peter, you go to more movies than anybody on the planet. Uh, Greg, <laughs> you try to go to more movies than anybody on the planet, but basically work, uh, shall we say, gets in the way. Uh, and I'm always torn between, like, this coming week, there's the opening of Once which conflicts with the opening night, well, the media invitation to the story about John Farnham, who's my favourite Australian performer. So, you know, 
you, you want, want to split yourself in two, not literally. So it's it's always you know a juggling exercise. So I the one thing that I would like to see as well, uh, and and maybe you guys can help orchestrate this. We need a diary that combines theatre and film. Now I keep one, but I, I want a, a professional one done by the the publicists. Can we ever orchestrate that, Peter? What do you reckon? Good luck with that. They, even the, <laughs> the film area, the central diary, isn't used properly anyway. Yeah, I no, I, I know it's a pipe dream, so I'll continue keeping my own diary. So Driftwood the Musical, it's set against the backdrop of the Holocaust, and it's a deeply moving tale of tribulation and triumph. The starting point for the, the creator, Tanya de Jong, Tanya de Jong, uh, basically, she's, she's an AM, I should say. Uh, it's her mother, Eva de Jong Duldig's, memoir that was written in 2017 and is called Driftwood Escape and Survival Through Art. And what you've got here is a musical that focuses on the true story of Eva's mother, that's Tanya's grandmother, whose name was Slava Horowitz Duldig. Slava Horowitz Duldig. You've got the Horowitz and you've got the Duldig families. They moved from Poland to Vienna before the start of the First World War. Slava, played by Tanya de Jong, who, who lived with and was very close to her sister Rella, Michaela Berger, married Karl Anton Berezin. So once again, Slava married Karl, and Slava and her sister Rella are very, very close. So both husband and wife, Slava and Karl, were artists, and Rella was an actress. Now, Slava had a brilliant idea to create and patent, and this actually happens, yes, indeed, true story the foldable umbrella. What a great invention, eh? Foldable umbrella. So you, you see how that goes down within the uh, within the musical. So she, this is a woman who Slava really appreciated fine design, filled their home with practical and beautiful furniture. The rise of Hitler, though, with, that, the, with, with the jackboots coming, their lives and those of their extended families were in peril. Slava and Karl's daughter, Eva, played by Bridget Costello, acts as the narrator to Driftwood, the musical. And events start to unfold as Eva celebrates her 18th birthday. All her life, she's noted an unexplained sadness, a secretiveness about her parents. And then her father gifts her a treasure trove of documents, of letters, of photos, and more than that, right? And that explains why, why the sadness, why the secretive nature. Also among the five performers is Nelson Gardner, who has, among other roles, well, he's cast as Carl's brother, Ignaz, and Rella's husband, Marcel. Y you think about it. So many families were torn asunder or destroyed by the Nazis. Accordingly, this personal story cuts to the quick. But it also is one of hope and inspiration. The playwright is Jane Bodie, while the score by Anthony Barnhill has been influenced by the music of the era, and also by Jewish melodies. There's, there's a great deal to Driftwood, the musical, so much in the lives of the protagonists. The first act, that establishes the relationships. But I found the second particularly impactful because the revelations just keep on coming. Tears, I, I, look, they were rolling down my cheeks. The pick of the performers to me, Michaela Berger, she's got a real richness of tone, and that's matched by her authenticity, which is what we talked about, Peter, with regards to what I don't like when I don't like a movie, often it's because I don't have the belief that I want to have. So that's really important here. Tanya de Jong, she's an opera 
singer. And this operatic excellence is really noteworthy throughout. Anton Berezin is this constant and assured presence. He's very much a safe pair of hands. And Bridget Costello, she's got this really sweet, rounded voice, beautiful vocals, very much ear-pleasing. Nelson Gardner, jack of all trades, assuming numerous personas, and accordingly, he adopts several accents. The sets and props, the set designer is Jacob Batista, highly evocative. The furniture, the furnishings, along with personal items, establish the time frame. And I really like this element that I'm about to share with you. A large, jagged, parchment-like screen above the stage, a really fine showcase for visuals. Then you've got sound and lighting design. Yes, they enhance the experience. And, and a three-piece band comprised of piano, violin and cello, really excellent, first rate. Direction is from Gary Abrahams, and he has continued to successfully work on the production since its premiere last year. And the choreography is by Sophie Loughran. There's also a brilliant program. Please get that when you go along to see Driftwood the Musical. Highly informative and insightful, well worth purchasing. So it's on Driftwood the Musical at Chapel of Chapel until the 20th of May. Then it moves to three venues in Sydney. And if you're interested in buying tickets, it's pretty easy. Just go to driftwoodthemusical.com.au. That is a Driftwood. So I've seen it now two years in a row, and they have developed the story. There's no question about that. I thought there was a lot of lot of changes that worked very, very well in the second act. Maybe it was just my impression, but that's how I saw it. That is Driftwood. Now, I'm just cognizant that we are, are running very short of time. <coughs> so I am going to mention just in passing that I – and next week I'll give it a full review – Happy Days is on Melbourne Theatre Production Company production, which I saw – on Friday night at Southbank Theatre, the Sumner. This is the the Irish playwright Samuel Beckett's one. It's considered to be a masterwork, and the yeah the Independent in Britain called it one of the forty best plays of all time. It's on at Southbank Theatre, the Sumner, until the tenth of June. Directed by Petra Kalive and starring Judith Lucy. Wow, great performance by her, and also. Uh, Hayden Spencer. I'll talk more about it next week. Peter, thank you for your participation. Pleasure. And Greg, likewise, a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Good on you. We'll catch you next week on First on Film and Entertainment. (laughs) 